0: People for over 2,000 years have been trying to disprove Christianity, and none have. None have. You're listening to the Parent Equip podcast. Parent Equip is a resource provided by Englewood students that's meant to come alongside you as you seek to train your child to reflect God's character and extend His kingdom. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. You know, 2 Corinthians 10 3 through 5, and really the last part of it says, is we are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of Christ. And we want to walk in obedience to that. And we want to take every thought captive to that, right? Because just as we start out, when you look at Satan in the Garden of Eden, what he did with Adam and Eve is he brought doubt into the garden, right? And he was Wanting Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness and the truthfulness of his word. And the interesting thing is, is he doesn't have, a, you know, a hundred plays to work with. He's, Satan has a few, but they work really well. He doesn't need anything other than to create doubt and division. And he does it well. And that's what we're here to talk about. So when your child doubts the faith, and so I want to give you four keys just to remember to kind of start it out. And then the first key, as you can see, it's unanswered questions to the Christian faith can lead to doubting the faith, which can lead to rejecting the faith. And it's just important that, man, when your students come and ask questions, you may not know the answers, and that's okay. Say that. I don't, I don't have an answer, but we can get the answers. We can get the answers on that because the worst thing to say to your child is you just got to believe. You just have to have faith. And while there's an essence of truth to that, that's not going to carry them through the tough questions of life and it's not going to carry them through the tough times of life. Okay. And so this is the big one, unanswered questions. The second thing is doubt's a universal human experience. Christians and atheists alike and all points in between struggle with doubts. They struggle with doubts. And so, lack could be caused of the crisis of belief. And so, the interesting thing is, is when I'm having conversations with atheists and agnostics, I'm trying to create a crisis of belief in their life. I will start where they're at, and I will just break down their worldview to where it opens the door. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me insert the truth of the gospel into this. Same way we have crisis of belief, so do atheists, so do agnostics, so do Muslims, so do Mormons. We just have to be able to get to that point. Second thing, or the third thing is doubts can be good if they cause us to turn to God for answers. Again, it's, we don't want to, if I've got doubts about if a good God would allow evil to happen, I'm not going to go to an atheist to find that out, but so often that's what we do. We jump on the YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it is, and we're going to people that know nothing about God, and we're thinking that they're going to give us answers, right? It's like if I got a heart problem, I'm not going to a mechanic to find out about my heart. I'm going to a heart doctor. And so we don't want to go to somebody that knows nothing about Christianity, To try to find our answers. And then the fourth thing is our doubts don't change who God is, right? They don't change His ability to work in our lives. It doesn't change. God is big enough for all of our questions. He is big enough for all of our questions. Uh, We have biblical doubters. You got John the Baptist, right? Before he was beheaded, he was imprisoned. He sends two, two of his followers to Jesus and said, hey, ask him if he really is the Messiah, or should we expect another? This is the same guy that baptized Jesus, heard the Father speak from heaven and the Spirit descend down, and now he's like, are you, are you really the one? Are you really the one? And Jesus didn't scold John the Baptist and say, you should just believe Man, he gave him an answer, right? He went back to the Old Testament. He gave these Messianic prophecies that this is what the Messiah would do. This is what Jesus did, right? Jesus presented the evidence of who he was. And his disciples went back to John and told John. And as you can see, Thomas, he was the famous doubter. And he said, I won't believe unless I see the nail scars. Right? And Thomas can take a bad rap on that. He was just asking for evidence. Just believe is, was not good enough for Thomas. He's like, I need to see evidence. And my wife and I were just kind of talking about this on the way. up. Uh, she, she calls it a simple faith, but it's, I think it's a strong faith. But she, she can just believe. She reads God's word. She never questions. She never doubted it. That wasn't my case. Before I came to Christ, I was asking questions. After I've come to Christ, I still ask questions. Right? I'm always looking for that evidence um, to shore up the faith. And then, of course, we see it with Elijah and David also in the Old Testament. So there's doubters in the, old, in the Bible. They doubt it. Doubt's not a bad thing, right? As long as we turn to God and it drives us to the Scriptures, it drives us to the feet of Christ because God can handle our questions. This go through some research. You can see it up here. It's Cultural Research Center, George Barna. Uh, all the research was done before the pandemic. It released in 2020. And as you can see, here it is: it's 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Right? 2% of millennials have a biblical worldview. The studies aren't out just yet, but the, the trend right now looks for Gen Z, which would really, which would be your, your children, um, is it's going to be less than 2% have a biblical worldview. 21% of those attending the evangelical Protestant churches have a biblical worldview. And you think, like, well, 21 is better than 6. They just released an update on the 6%. Uh, so in three years, it, the, those that have a biblical worldview went from 6%. It's now at 4% for the latest study. And the latest statistics are out there. And you can see this. Uh, 88% of Americans have a syncretistic worldview. 65% self-identify as Christians. And again, that's, I didn't put self in there, but that's really what it is if you ask them, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Now, if we ask them what that means to be a Christian, that becomes a whole different story. But they would self-identify as that. And 40% of the millennials identify as an atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. We call those the don'ts or the nuns. They have you know, no, no religious, not n e s, right? Uh, they have no religious affiliation. And you're like, man, where's the good news? Well, the good news statistics don't determine your future. A statistic does not determine your future. What it tells us is is if we don't change what we're doing, we're going to continue on that trajectory. But our God is a God of hope. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to godliness. He calls us to discipline. So there's always hope. So, what constitutes a biblical worldview? And this is what George Barna, and this is what he used in his measurements to determine if somebody had a biblical worldview. Just real quick, a worldview is a lens that you look through and you interpret all data and all reality through. And so, through a biblical worldview, we're talking about Scripture is our lens that we interpret all reality through. And we do it. We're called to do it 100% of the time. Again, I've done some of these studies at our church at Bellevue, and I've done them with uh, some high school students. I've done them with college students. I've done them with adults. And generally, the college students was a pretty select group, about 30 or 40 of them, and they came out about 59% of biblical worldview. And according to these stats, that's great. But, man, Christ calls us to so much more than that. Our college students were about 43%. They had a biblical worldview 100% of the time. And then the adults, it broke them down by age, and and it would go anywhere from from as low as 40% to as high as 63%. Again, a statistic doesn't determine your future, but it does let us know what we can work on when we start to look at those things as far as who has a biblical worldview. And when I teach these classes, a lot of people, I tell them, look, I know you think you have a biblical worldview. And then once we start hitting on some of the things, they're like, "Mm, I don't know about that. I don't know about that either. And what we find out is, I'm just giving you a biblical worldview. And if we disagree with that, the problem is not the worldview, it's the viewer. Right? And so if you're not actively cultivating a biblical worldview, then you're passively absorbing a false one. You're passively absorbing a false worldview. So we've got this absolute moral truth exists. Again, these are what constitutes a biblical worldview. <clears throat> the Bible's totally accurate in all of its principles that it teaches. Satan is a real being or force, not merely symbolic. A person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or, or do good works, right? Be good, do, do good, that kind of thing. Be better, do better. Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. And God's the all-knowing, powerful creator of the world who still u- rules the universe today. And you would have to agree with all of those statements to constitute a biblical worldview. Again, there's probably a few more that I would personally add. But again, he's the researcher, he's the statistician, and so this is what he's come up with. So what we are going to look at are some reasons for doubt. What brings doubt into our minds and our hearts? And so you can see the first one is it comes from a lack of foundational knowledge. In other words, it's a poor understanding of who God is. You know, one of my favorite quotes, my students hear this so much, and that is it comes from A.W. Tozer, and he says, What you think about God is the most important thing you can think. It drives everything. So whether you're an atheist, atheist thinks something about God, that he doesn't exist. And that's going to determine the trajectory of their life. So what we think about God is the most important thing that we can think. And if we don't think rightly about God, we're going to end up in the ditch in some way, shape, or form. So it's important that we think rightly about God. So if it's a poor understanding of who God is. A wrong view of God will cause us to have a wrong view of reality. have a wrong view of reality the second thing it's a misunderstanding of faith or of belief right the world says our faith is a blind faith in other words it's a faith without evidence that's what the world says please hear me on this we must not let the world define what faith is right because who owns the language controls the culture They don't control the biblical culture, right? That belongs to God. It's important that we define our terms. We don't let the world define our terms. A biblical faith doesn't ask us to trust without any evidence, right? It asks us to believe because of the evidence. Again, Jesus, when people asked who Jesus was, he didn't say, you just have to believe. Man, he'd do a miracle, He'd heal somebody. He would challenge his apostles, but he was always giving evidence that he was who he said he was. Right? The end of John 20, 31 says, these things I've written to you in order that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. All of these things are evidence that Jesus is who he said he is. Man, the Christian faith is not a belief without evidence. It's not a belief system without evidence. Third, Doubts come from conflicting commitments. Right? Some people reject Christianity because they're committed to a lifestyle or ideas that are antithetical to biblical morality. And you can see that I don't want to change how I'm living, so I'll reject the Bible. Excuse me. Conflicting commitments. Thomas Nagel, he's an atheist professor up at New York University, a philosophy professor. This is what he says He says, It isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my beliefs. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. What do you think about that when you read that quote? Good, bad, indifferent? Bad? What makes it bad? It's sad. Sad, okay, yeah, it's sad. When I first saw that quote, I thought, that's blind faith right there. That's blind faith. The very person that would claim to be a free thinker. Right, that's what th- I love that term that they that they call it. we're free thinkers. No, seriously. That's blind faith. Zero evidence for God's non-existence. Zero. And yet, I just don't want to believe. Blind faith. That's an example of it. So, four doubts come from practical atheism. This is alive and well in our churches today. It's believing in the existence of God, but living as if he doesn't exist, or he doesn't care how I live. God wants me to be happy, this makes me happy, so God would approve of it. And again, we see that whole thing with the LGBTQ movement that's going on right now. It's like, hey, as long as I am in a homosexual, monogamous marriage, that's honoring to Christ. And man, we're redefining all kinds of things. Even in that statement, we're redefining all kinds of things. But if I'm happy, that's all God cares about. Forget about holiness. Happiness becomes the highest goal within the culture that we're in today. God doesn't care how I live. He wants me to be happy. Questions? All right. Five doubts come from sin's effect. And you can see all of those things that are up there. People's moral positions come from their view of God. Remember, what we think about God is the most important thing that we can think. Sin distorts our view of God and ourselves. Undealt with sin leads us to justify our actions or to find fault with others, including God. Right? It certainly can't be my fault. Why would God allow this to happen? And then it distorts our view of God's purpose and design. And this the purpose and design is a huge, is a huge piece, you know, because we can always get into what is truth and how do you know something's truth? Right? I hear from our college students: well, how do we know that's true? Well, first we need to know God's character and we know God's design. And we find that within Genesis chapter 1, how he designed He designed everything with a purpose and with a design. And when it gets outside of God's purpose and design, right, things don't end well. But when we're living according to God's purpose and design, things are going to go better. It's going to be honoring to Christ. Because we're staying within his parameters. And so when we talk about marriage, one man and one woman, God's going to honor that because that's his institution. Once we get outside of that, right, and this is where we're at in our culture today, we have gotten so far removed from God's purpose and design, we're literally at a tipping point. We are literally at a tipping point in our culture because we're so far removed from God's purpose and design. And so it's important that we teach that. We're not going to get into that tonight. Just know that that's a critical idea that we need to be pursuing Uh, Doubts come from distractions. We can concentrate on only so much. The more we concentrate on worldly things, the less we concentrate on godly things. And what we think about most is what we will become like. Where do we set our time? Again, man, we got more knowledge in our pockets right now than the previous known world has ever had. At our fingertips, we got all kinds of knowledge but knowledge doesn't equal wisdom knowledge doesn't equal wisdom wisdom is knowing how to use the knowledge in a way that's honoring to Christ that fits within his purpose and design so knowledge does not equal wisdom so then we go in <clears throat> excuse me types of doubt there's intellectual doubt This is usually what I deal with with atheists and agnostics. They come, uh, they'll ask rational questions about God, not finding answers, such as evolution. Or if God's so good, why does evil exist? Or if God's such a loving God, why would he send people to hell? You know, and I talked just briefly about that crisis of belief. I mean, this was, this is, before I became a follower of Christ, I was in the intellectual doubt range. I was 24 years old when I came to know Christ. Um. And that's where I was at. I wanted, I wanted answers. But even then, what got me into apologetics was our youngest son. He was probably eight years old. I don't even remember how old he was. I was a Christian probably for eight or nine years. I was teaching a young adult married class. And I was listening to Adventures in Odyssey. Is that a... You guys familiar with the... You know? Okay, I just want to make sure. You know, this just like, I don't even know, dude. Anyway... And so Eugene Meltzner was on there, and I just remember him talking, and he just said, No, we're talking about God's, God's word. The Bible he says, What if it's not true? That one phrase shook me to the core. I could not shake that. What if God's word is not true? And I just said, Lord, what if your word's not true? Right, so the, the good news was as I turned to God, I mean, that was my first response. What if it's not true? It's plain as day, he said, ask me any question and I'll answer it. And over the last 20 years, I've been asking questions and God's been answering them. He's answered so many questions, tough questions. I just quit asking questions anymore because I know that when the time comes, he's going to answer them for me. He's going to answer them for me. And even if I don't have an answer right now, I can get the answer. Because he's He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. He wants me to know those things that will strengthen my faith. Questions? All right. So, again, we talked about this evolution, types of doubt, intellectual, unanswered challenges to the Christian faith can lead to doubting uh, the faith, which leads to rejecting. That was the first key point. So what happens if we have intellectual doubt? Do these things. Write your doubts down. Put them down on paper. Pray and ask God to reveal his truth and break down the barrier of disbelief. Investigate or search out the answers. Investigate or search out the answers. Man, one of my favorite authors is Francis Schaeffer. um, Wrote back in the 60s and 70s. Just a brilliant mind. Um, And back in the early 70s, he was saying, this is not a time for lazy Christians to be. We need to do the hard work of our faith again it's not a blind faith we need to do that hard work we need to investigate it we need to find out god's truth on these questions again it's okay not to know the answers it's just not okay to continue to not know the answers we have to do that work and trust me if you've got kids you know they can ask tough questions i mean jeremy i thought he was he read some questions from a third grader this morning i'm like oh lord help their parents Right. So do that. Emotional or psychological doubt. And that's the second one. It causes one to question God's goodness. It's often tied to a tragedy or some other pain or suffering that will lead to this. Right. And then you may, you may hear this at times. A friend that's a homosexual or transgender says, They're good people. How could God send them to hell? I won't hate them. They're my friends. Well, God doesn't call us to hate anybody. tells us to love our neighbors, right? That's the second greatest commandment, that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. But what we can't do is affirm somebody in a lie. We can't affirm somebody in something that's outside of God's design and purpose. Because to sit there and think that, oh, I'm going to affirm my friend in this because I love them. Look, if you're affirming them in a lie, you're not loving them. Man, God always brings love and truth together. Love and truth go hand in hand in God's purpose and design. And so, again, emotional or psychological doubt will come into that. So if you have that, do these things, right? Take your pain to God and then plug into a Christian community. Man, we just sent some students off that were in my class, ones at Auburn, the others at Tennessee, and I'm like, hey, you find a good church as soon as you get there. And we just started texting back and forth, and they'd send me a text every Sunday. Hey, I visited this church. I visited this church. I visited this church. And they told me what they liked about it. You know what they didn't talk about? They didn't say, excuse me, they didn't say, all the music was great, even though it may have been. And if you're a music person, I'm not knocking that, Right. They didn't say that, man, I love the way the building looked. These guys are telling me, and they're like, you know what? This guy was theologically sound. I mean, he was doctrinally nailing it. Or, you know, I think he was kind of weak on his theology. These are freshmen in college, and they're sitting there just picking the sermon apart as to is it good or is it not good, right? And that's what we want for our children. That's what you want for your children to discern truth from a lie, right? So plug into Christian community, seek professional help if necessary. And then three is moral doubt. You know, we question God's moral law. We'll have a personal sin, rebellion, or wrongly placed motivations. And so, you know, so it's always interesting. I've been, I've been discipling for our, you know students for a long, long time. And as you will be talking, we'll be text messaging. And then all of a sudden, they just go silent on me. And I'm like, hey, you okay? And I don't hear anything. I'll call, they don't pick up my phone, they don't call me back. I know they've just got into a sin that they don't want to talk about. I know that. I call them. Hey, you need to call me. You need to meet me for coffee. We need to talk about this because we get into this and we begin to think either I'm ashamed or I know better than God does. I know better than God does. And so that sin, that moral doubt will drive us to reject God's truth, to reject God's love, to reject his kindness. So if you have moral doubt, do these things. Confess your sins, repent, seek forgiveness, and doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. You know, we get a doubt and we automatically think, oh, that's, that's truth. I just need to find evidence for it. I just need to find evidence for it. So, doubts spread like viruses. Ideas are like viruses that spread from person to person. In a current culture, bad ideas take more root than, easily than in bad ones, well, or good ones. And the truth of the matter is that's in any culture, not just this culture Bad ideas spread more easily than good ideas. So there was this professor, McGuire was his last name, in the 1950s. He did this experiment to test this idea of how the ideas spread. And so he got six groups of students and so the bad idea that he was wanting to see how would it spread or would it spread at all was it's bad to brush your teeth. (laughs) You know, we chuckle, we can laugh over that. And, you know, you may have some kids that they're like, yeah, I'm there. But it's bad to brush your teeth. And then each group that he sent in to hear this argument that it's bad to brush your teeth, they got a certain level of preparation. We'll just call it that. I'm going to walk you through each one of those steps. But instead of it's bad to brush your teeth, For the sake of this discussion, we're going to say that Jesus is a myth, right? And I use this because in working with college students, it's a couple times a year. Usually, it's at the beginning of the year. They'll come in. Man, my professor came in. The first thing he said was, man, Jesus didn't even exist. What do you think about that, Mr. Rick? And I'm like, what do you think about that? And so, real life example. And so, you can see group number one. They got no preparation. They didn't even know that the professor was going to say brushing your teeth is bad. They just walked in, sat down, and the professor just gave this whole spiel on why it's bad to brush your teeth. He gave good founding evidence for it. It was all, it was amazing, right? And so that first group comes and goes, the second group, they're a reinforcement of a previous preparation, right? In other words, what it means is before the students walked into the class, their parents said, you know... You remember Jesus is real, right? Yeah, Mom, I remember Jesus is real. And we send them into the class. Then you go on to your third group. They got a warning of the attack. And you can sit there and see, you'll be exposed to a persuasive argument that Jesus is a myth. That's what they get before they go in. You're going to be exposed to this argument. Group number four, it's called inoculation, right? Right? He says, you'll hear an argument that no credible historian believes Jesus was a real person. That's what the professor's telling them. And then they go in and they hear the argument. Group five, they got inoculation plus refutation. And the students are told, you will hear an argument that Jesus is a myth. But remember when we studied the extra-biblical writings that confirmed Jesus was a real person? No credible historian would deny this. And that's what they get. So they're getting a little more information. And it's, when I deal with this, there's a guy Bart Ehrman. You, if you don't know him, don't worry about it. Your life is a whole lot better by not knowing the guy. But anyway, he's a, he's an atheistic theology. I know a theology professor at the University of North Carolina. So he teaches New Testament theology. An atheist at a college. And so I just pull up his YouTube. And this guy says, look, everybody knows that Jesus is a real historical person. And I just, I share that with my students. I said, go and share that with your professor. Here's an atheist that says Jesus is a real historical person. So we give them the evidence to walk through this thing. We give them the inoculation plus the refutation. And then the last group. And again, each one's building upon the prior one. It says inoculation plus refutation plus preparation. And you tell your student, you know one argument that will be brought up is Jesus is a myth. But you will be presented with several other arguments. And it will be up to you to think them through and refute them. And they send the students in. Now of those groups, what group do you think did the best as far as not believing Jesus is a myth. Which group do you think did the best? Six. Yeah. Six did the best. Which group do you think did the worst? Huh? One? One? Anybody else? You know the group that did the worst? Group number two. Group number two did the worst. Remember, Jesus is real. For children or students to believe a claim, they must be prepared to defend it against challenges. They must be able to defend it. Saying that Jesus is real is not preparing your child to defend the challenges that they're going to face once they leave the bubble. You know, one of the struggles, again, I said I've been discipling for a long time. A lot of discipleship programs that I see is we're discipling our people to live in Jerusalem. We're discipling them to live in Jerusalem, but when they leave these walls, they're out in Babylon. We need to disciple our children, our students, our members to go live in Babylon because that's that's where they're going. And we need to disciple them with that in mind. So that they go and engage the cultures. And the, the honesty is, is, you know, your children, they may be the best and brightest and they may get hundreds on all their tests. But for the most part, our youth don't know how to think. Right? Like I said, India, she's been in my class for three years. I start every class out the same way the first day. Uh, I know you're bright. You're probably the best amongst the best. But you don't know how to think. Encouraging, Right? Isn't that so encouraging, India? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did you know how to think? Thank you very much. (laughs) Testimony right there. You know, so we need, and that's what six does. And you need to think through those other arguments. Whatever they are, you need to think through them. We need to teach our children to think, not just answers to a test. Not just answers to a test. Questions? we're moving on. Right? The antidote to indoctrination is to know the truth, tell the truth, expose your child to the lies that would deceive them, show them how to refute those lies, and prepare them with thinking skills necessary to continue resisting falsehoods. It's your job as parents, it's a job as your next gen leaders and in the church is to prepare your students for that. So apologetics, these are the three things what apologetics has done for me. As I was kind of learning this whole thing, didn't even know quite what was going on, but it it strengthened my faith. It helped me to defend the faith, right, 1 Peter 3, 15. And it helps me to lead other people to the faith. Man, when I started learning this whole apologetics, and and I know some people sit there and think, oh, you know what, that's just an add-on to Christianity that weird people do. And I'm not saying there's not weird people in apologetics. I mean, I, I'd probably been called that. But, man, this is a biblical command that we are called to defend the faith. It's not just some extra thing. It's a part of our faith. We don't hear that much, but it is a part of our faith. And so it's to strengthen your faith. So teaching these things, and, again, this is just big worldview, kind of umbrella type of ideas, but it will strengthen your faith will help defend the faith and it will help you lead others. I get into more gospel conversations that start out with apologetic conversations. You know, there's some crazy ideas out there. You know, I'm, I'm tempted to bring up a recent one and I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring it up, okay? And if I offend you, then I apologize. You know, but it's this, um, it's this whole idea that the earth is flat, I literally had somebody ask me that. Mr. Rick, do you think the earth is flat? You know, and it's one of those things and you're just like, this is a setup. This is a setup. And I'm like, no, I don't think the earth is flat. There's no evidence for that. Now, I'll be honest with you. As you, as an adult, if you believe the earth is flat and you were to come up and want to have a discussion with me about, is the earth flat? I, I probably would not. I would not have that discussion with you. You should know better. But if a student comes and asks, I'm going to do the hard work to research that and discuss that because I don't ever want a student to leave thinking I just blew them off. Even if it's a ridiculous question, I'm going to do the work because I want them to know they can always come and ask questions, and that's that key point number one, It's that key point number one. Man, I want to tell you about this, and again, this is Frosh Camp, this is a, the young lady, she has given me permission to talk about this, uh, I, I know about peer pressure, you know about peer pressure, you know, what I did not know was just how powerful peer pressure can be, but this young lady, man, she was, she was in my classes. My wife had discipled her we, since the eighth grade, I think, is, what, is when it was. And she, if we ever sent a student off ready for college, this young lady was it. She could answer the tough questions if God is the, I mean, the whole thing. She could answer them. And she goes off to Frosh Camp. Listen, this is at the University of Memphis. And so they go off to these cabins, and they spend the weekend there, and there's a group of 10 to 12 girls, and there's three or four counselors. And it's just, they're just doing whatever they do. And so one night, they get into a room, not not this big, but, and they said, they quadrated the room off, and they said, over in this corner is, I strongly agree. And in this corner is, I agree. And then here, I disagree. And then over here, by the drums was, I strongly disagree. And then in the middle was, I haven't made up my mind yet. And so then the counselors just started asking questions. Some of them are pretty benign. You know, do you think it's okay to cheat on a test? And then they would just go to little spots to whatever they think. Do you think it's okay to drink, smoke, drugs? And they'd go to the spots. And how about sex outside of marriage? They didn't say that. It was the hookup culture is really what it was. What do you think about the hookup culture? And then... And you started seeing these students going there. And this one student was like, oh, I strongly disagree. And it dawned on her what was happening. Every other eye was looking back at her, thinking, she's weird. And she knew where the questions were going from that point on. And the last question was, do you think homosexual marriage is okay? And all the students went to agree and strongly disagree, or strongly agree, and they were all looking back at her. She was almost in tears. The pressure was so great. And it grieved me when she came back and told me, because I didn't prepare her for that. I didn't even think about that. She's a lieutenant in the Air Force right now, and she's amazing. She's amazing. A year or two later, there was another student going to the University of Memphis. He comes up to me and says, Mr. Rick, I'm going to Frost Camp in two weeks. And I'm like, you know what's coming? Yeah, Mr. Rick, I know what's coming. I'll tell you all about it. I said, the only thing I want to know is where you stood. That's all I want to hear. A couple weeks go by. He calls me, hey, let's do lunch. And so we go and do lunch, and I'm like, how was camp? I said, did they, did they do the rooms? They did the rooms. I said, all I want to know is where you stood. He said, Mr. Rick, I stood with Christ. He had the inoculation, the refutation, and the preparation to stand. He knew it was coming. This one young lady that went... She was just blindsided by it. We must prepare our students for those tough moments in life because they're coming. If they're not facing them now, they're coming. But I've been around long enough to know they're facing it now. They're facing it now. The pressure's real. We need to be able to give them the answers to stand firm in the truth. Questions? All right. So dealing with doubt. One, be honest with yourself about the nature of doubt or the nature of truth. Man, we live in a world, hey, you do you and I'll do me, right? There's your truth and there's my truth. Truth is not based on feelings, right? Truth is discovered. It's not determined. Our feelings don't determine truth. I don't know who said it, but, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. They don't care. There's truth. And there's non-truth. As followers of Christ, we must align ourselves with the truth. Because if we're talking your truth and my truth, we're not talking the truth. I can promise you that. There's the truth. And be committed to pursuing truth wherever it leads. Even if you don't like it. Because if it's truth, it reflects God's character. And it's his goodness that he wants us to have. And we need to trust God more than we trust our feelings. Truth will prevail in the face of questions. A lie cannot persist when confronted with the truth. And man, and that's the whole cancel culture today. It's not like they got better ideas and they can stand up against our ideas, they don't even want to hear your ideas. Because when the truth comes to bear on those ideas, it'll be exposed as a lie. So I just won't let you speak your truth. I will cancel you. If Christianity is true, there's no need to fear what you will find by investigating it. Search your doubts to find its root. What's causing your doubts? And doubt your doubts. Know the truth test for Christianity. It's the resurrection, First Corinthians 15, 14. Man, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is vain. It's nothing. It's bankrupt if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. Learn the evidence for the resurrection, right? Lee Strobel's got a book called The Case for Christ. It's a great one. It's easy to read. It's easy to work through. It's that foundational idea is we have to start there. Because without that, Christianity is a farce. So make sure you're you're doubting the things that the Bible actually teaches. Right? It says, I can't believe the Bible because I won't hate my LGBTQ friends. Again, Scripture doesn't call us to that. That's a straw man that they're setting up. Scripture doesn't call us to hate the LGBTQ or the Muslim or the Mormon or the atheist or the agnostic It calls us to love them, but it calls us to speak truth all the time in love, right? Because of abuses that's taken place in the church, I can't believe the Bible. The Bible condones slavery, therefore I can't trust the Bible. I'll tell you the story. I think I got a few minutes, uh, or hopefully I do. This was... um, a college student brought her friend. She was at Memphis, and she was in the arts and singing, which is a very uh, very progressive, very liberal field that's there. And she goes, she's got more questions than I can answer. Can I bring her to you, Mr. Rick? Yeah, absolutely. Bring her on in. So she comes. I, I run the bookstore at Bellevue. So she comes into the bookstore, and we're just chatting it up. And, and so I said, I understand you have, me have some questions. And I said, oh, yeah. And she rips off like 10 or 11 questions. I was like, wow, you've been thinking about this for a minute. And I said, if there's one question that's most important to you, ask that one. Because it would take me days to answer all of those questions. And she says, okay. If God is so good, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? And I said, you know, that's a great question. I get that question more than anything else. Can I ask you a question before I answer that? She said, yeah. And I said, Why is that the most important question for you? And she goes on to tell me that her family was just super involved in the church. Super involved. And then something kind of went sideways in the church, and and their family was forced to leave. And then a couple years later, her dad left her mom. And she put that on the church because the church did this. She was hurt by the church. And again, whether it was valid or not, I don't know, but she was hurt by the church. And so we end up here. I could have given her the theodicy on evil, but I said, you know, I want you to know, one, Christ hurts with you. Christ hurts with you. And what that church did to your parents, that's not, God's, that's not what God called us to be. That's not how he called us to live. And so we just kind of walked through that piece of it. And tears just started rolling down her face. And I says, does that help? She goes, I just thought it was always God. That is not God's purpose for you. And that's not his design and purpose for marriage. And that's not his design and purpose for the church. Sometimes hurt cause us to turn away from Christ. People will mischaracterize positions in the Bible as grounds for not trusting in Christ. That's what this young lady was doing. We need to separate problems with the church or Christians from problems with Christianity, and that's an example that I just gave, right? We don't always live according to biblical truth, right? When we don't, we need to confess that. We need to repent and we need to make that right, whether it's with our children or somebody else. We need to make those things right. And this one here is we don't judge a belief system by the actions of those in the belief system, right? We judge the belief system by the tenets of the belief. And again, this we can talk about divorce. Well, what does God say about divorce, right? That's not God's plan. That's not his purpose and design. And that's... If I've done wrong, that doesn't mean that I'm living according to God's principles. As a matter of fact, I'm not, but people don't know that. And so it's important that we judge Christianity by the tenets of Christianity. What does it say we're supposed to do? How we're supposed to live, right? But people will use this and they turn it against and say, that's the reason why I won't believe. Be willing to work, to put in the work to resolve your questions. Uh, Don't go to the world to find your answers to Christianity. Eight is proactively expose your child to faith challenges. Man, the first time your child is exposed to challenges to their faith, it should not be when they go off to college. It should be here in the safety of their home and in the safety of their church is where they get confronted with these challenges. Again, I'll have parents come up to me and say, I want my child to be in your class. And I'm like, Okay, sophomore through seniors, uh, there's no discussion that's off the table, none. We discuss it all, right? We don't, we don't dress it up to make the pig look pretty. We don't do any of that. We talk about the tough issues, and we deal with them there in a safe environment. We don't want your children going off to college, and that's the first time they hear these challenges. They need to hear them at home, and they need to hear them at church. Then we can talk about it, and we can wade through those tougher issues. It's a safe place to be. It's a safe place to grow, and that's what we want to be able to do. Clearly identify your alternative to Christianity, right? If I'm not going to believe in Christianity, what am I going to believe in, right? We just think, I'm going to deconstruct my faith. Well, what are you deconstructing to? We don't ever think about that. And so we need to ask those questions. Well, what is it you're going to believe when you leave Christianity? You're going to believe something. Everybody has a worldview, whether we know it or not, we all have one. Which worldview best offers the explanation of the best explanation of reality? Man, Christianity best explains all of the reality around us. Why is there evil? Why is there good? Without God, we can't even say that there's something that's good or evil because we have to have a foundation for calling something good or a foundation for calling something evil. And then 10, we need to pray and read the Bible. Man, we need to be in God's Word, and we need to be seeking God's face because He's the one that has the answers. He's the one that gives the answers. Apart from His Holy Spirit, we can't know any of this. And so we need to continually pray and read the Scriptures. We need to do the hard work and study. God can handle our doubts. If Christianity is true, then we should not be afraid to ask challenging questions. And again, I have students come up to me and I ask so-and-so a question, and they said, well, you just have to believe. Man, let's talk. Let's talk. Every time a scientific experiment comes out, and it proves to be true, it always aligns with scripture. It never proves what's wrong in scripture. Bible's not a, a scientific textbook, but when it speaks on science, it always speaks accurately. It always speaks accurately. And I'm convinced that nobody's ever gonna bring an argument against Christianity that will stand true. I've been at this for over twenty years. I've talked with PhD students from England, this guy Stewart up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Nobody, And it's not because I'm brilliant and smart, because I'm not. But man, I just know that God is true. I know God is true. I've seen it. I've studied it. I've seen the evidence. I've seen the results of it.